40 years, there has been great relational tension between Laban and Jacob. Jacob left his home after conning a blessing, even though it was in the will of God. He always tries to help God out. That's Jacob. And after severe manipulation, dressing up like his brother, trying to talk like his brother, act like his brother, he gets the blessing from his father, and he leaves at his mother's request to go to Haran and uh, Padan Aram, up toward, well, it's hard for me to do this, but if you look at the map and you see Assyria, you go down a little bit between the Tigris-Euphrates River is a valley. That's where he fled, and that's where Laban fed his flocks for 20 years with Jacob. As he's leaving, God gets a hold of him. He has a tremendous promise of the presence of God that he would return back to the land one day. But nonetheless, Jacob meets his match in a fellow by the name of Laban. Laban was con artist numero uno. He had it wired. Of course, he was a little older. And so he had learned the fine art of manipulation and con artistry. And he kind of passes on a few tips to his nephew, Jacob. Jacob is tricked, falls in love with Rachel. Laban puts Leah in her place. So he has to marry Leah and Rachel. And he is watering and feeding Laban's flocks for 20 years. There is tension in that relationship. And yet, in that tension, they seem to live together. You know, it's interesting that Chet was telling me this morning that he was observing one time years ago a piano fall out of the back of a truck. And as it hit the road, it literally exploded. Can you imagine the thousands of pounds of pressure upon that harp inside the piano as the strings are causing so much tension in that thing for it to hit and break. Just In a piano, there is tension. But out of tension comes harmony. It's strange that in a tense situation, sometimes there can be those unspoken rules that bring a harmony. And so for tension, there was a harmony, at least an agreement between Jacob and Laban for those 20 years. But there was also tension within Jacob's own household. He loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah. He wanted Rachel. He didn't want Leah. But he got Leah and Rachel. Leah was trying to win the love of her husband. And so she had baby after baby naming it in hopes that now Jacob would love her for the many children that he has had. Things went from tension to friction. Because... God really did bless Jacob. And Jacob says, Laban, it's time for me to go home. I want to go back to my father's house. Laban says, man, I don't want you to leave. I have learned by experience, or literally in the Hebrew, divination, that God has blessed me because of you. I want you to hang around. Name your wages. Whatever you want, I'll give them to you. Jacob said, you will not. I don't trust you, you conniver. Tell you what, let's take all the brown goats and sheep the spotted and the speckled, goats and sheep, separate them from your flocks and they will be mine. And so we know that every one that is brown or speckled or spotted, that uh, if I have a white sheep in my flock, it means that I ripped you off. You'll be able to tell which are mine. Well, God blessed this character and Jacob's flocks began to multiply more and more. And he had an interesting kind of a way for their reproduction. He took pieces of wood, poplar, chestnut, and almond trees, and he peeled the bark back, and he set these white rods in the feeding and watering troughs of the sheep and goats so that as they would go during their time to conceive, they would see this strange sight and conceive in front of the rods, and inexplicably, God just blessed that whole endeavor, and his flocks grew and grew and grew, which made Laban's sons jealous, and they got together and said, you know what? Jacob has ripped our dad off. That's the reason he has such huge flocks. He's a ripoff. Jacob got wind of this. And he takes his wives aside out in the field and he says, Honey, number one, and honey, number two, it's time for me to leave. Your father has looked at me with those eyes and I can tell it's the kind of a look that's disfavorable. I know that trouble is brewing and I've got to get out of here fast. So they said, Well, you know, 
Our Father really has not provided for us a dowry. He took the money that you earned all of these years and spent it on Himself. So we have nothing. And so whatever God tells you to do, let's do it. And so they start making their way to the new land uh, down in chapter 31. Now, we learned a lesson last week that when things turn sour for us, they can be a blessing in disguise. When the life and the plans that you have programmed in front of you go a different direction. Your natural inclination is to go, God, why? This is great, man. I like no friction. I like it when things are going my way. But oftentimes, God uses the friction to cause us to find a new direction. And so God was using the friction between the herdsmen of Laban to get his mind going back to the place that God called him to, the land of Canaan. And so it was because of the friction that he talked to his wives. His wives said, go for it. If God tells you to do, do it. God spoke to him, and he was on his way. God used the friction to give him a new direction. You could say that Jacob has been in the College of Hard Knocks, and I think that's the best university sometimes, especially for hard-headed people. You know, there's some people that just learn by listening. They watch the mistakes of other people, and they observe the life of another individual. They don't have to be set down and be, you know, personally discipled of, okay, do this, don't do that. They just watch and they observe and they learn from the mistakes. They learn from the good and the bad. Other people are hard-headed. They're kind of like, show me. I don't believe it. Of course, a lot of those people now live in Missouri. That's what they call themselves, the show me state. At least it's become sort of a, uh, a byword for the doubting Thomas. And, and Jacob was like that. He had to be broken. Some people are just easy to control and, and uh, steer by the Lord. Others are more difficult. And they need to be shown that lesson. Well, he's been in the College of Hard Knocks experience. Laban was the dean and the president of that university. Now it's graduation time. Well, he didn't go through the normal graduation ceremony. In fact, uh, beginning in verse 20, we read of uh, chapter 31. We left off in chapter in verse 27. Let's back up seven verses. Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. Now he left the same way he left his dad and brother and mom when he left the land of Canaan. He didn't say, see you guys later, let me give mom a kiss and dad a handshake. He just stole away, you know, quietly in the middle of the night. That's what he did with Laban. It's the kind of a person he was. He had something to hide. That's why he was so secret about it. His life wasn't lived as an open book. When he left, his wife Rachel stole the household idols that Laban would keep in his tent. In Hebrew, they're called teraphim. And she kept them to herself. Now, the teraphim, as we mentioned last time, were used in a tent to consult. If you wanted some advice, you would ask your little gods, and supposedly they would answer you through circumstances. It was good luck to have them. It was also... A demonstration of leadership passed on to the next generation. So she wanted all the blessings of the past. She wasn't completely, at this point, sold out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and her husband, Jacob. She was still engrossed in the immorality of her land. She takes the idols with her. And it says they headed toward the mountains of Gilead. On the map behind me, locate the Sea of Galilee. Okay, well, let's do this. Locate the Dead Sea. It's the bigger lake down in the middle of the map. Well, it's not very big on the map because we have uh, the whole Near East. But you see the word Hebron up there? Can you find that? Hebron. It's right in the middle of the Dead Sea. If you follow the river up to a tiny little blue dot called the Sea of Galilee, and you go to the right just a little bit, that's Gilead. So he went all the way from Haran down through Gilead, you know, Padanaram, Haran, and then down to Gilead, the mountains of Gilead, you can see them today. If you're going toward Israel with us, when we leave the Sea of Galilee and we're going down toward Bethshean and down toward the Jordan Valley, off to your left are the mountains of Gilead. Beautiful grazing pasture. He's now coming into the land of Canaan, and it was there that Laban finally overtakes him, pursues him. 
And uh, we remember that God came to Laban, verse 24, in a dream at night. And he said, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. So Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me? You know, he's really laying the trip on. He's making him feel more guilty probably than he was feeling already. For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. You have done foolishly in so doing. He said, you know, if you would have left the right way, I'd have thrown a big party for you, going away party. We'd have brought in the musicians, we'd have brought in the cake, we'd have just had a great old time. I'd be able to kiss my grandsons goodbye and my granddaughters and my own daughters. But man, you really deprived them of a blessing. <laughs> it is in my power to do you harm. And I believe personally that when Laban was going after Jacob, it was in his mind, he thought, you know, I'm going to kill him. Because he saw that the blessing of God rested upon him. He was jealous of it. God blessed him because of Jacob. Now he was gone. His gods are gone. His family is gone. He squandered everything. And I'm just going to kill him. He was probably angry enough to do that. So it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you don't speak to Jacob either good nor bad. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters away from me by force. What a horrible way to live, by fear. I was afraid. I had to leave in the middle of the night because I was afraid of you. You're a conniver, man. You're a con artist. Takes one to know one, of course. And he knew one because he was one. He was afraid of him. He'd already changed his wages ten times in twenty years. Lowered his wages. So he knew who he was dealing with. And then he says in verse 32, With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen him. There's a little lesson in that. No matter how confident you may be on a certain issue, there are some times when it pays off to not speak too rashly because you just don't have the full information. You might think that you have the full information, but you might lack some of the facts or some of the motivations. And for you to speak out confidently, it can turn around and, you know, hit you back in the head. But he said, listen, whoever has those gods, just go ahead and kill them. Well, his wife... Rachel, the one he loved the most, had those gods. And Laban went to Jacob's tent and to Leah's tent and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, that is the luggage and the saddle that sat upon the camels, and she sat on them. So here she is in the tent. She's on the saddle, you know, it's put in the tent, and she's, they're underneath her, and she's just sitting back, and her dad comes in. Hi, Dad, how are you? And Laban searched about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is upon me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Saying, Dad, I'd like to stand up and pay you the customary honors that a daughter would to her father, but it's my time of the month. I, I'm having my monthly period. That's why I just have to sit here and I can't get it. You understand, don't you, Dad? Now, she was her father's daughter. She had enough of her father in her, and now she's starting the conniving and the lying and the manipulating. Hey, I'd like to get up, but I can't. Now, Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What's my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. 
and I have not eaten of the rams of your flock. That which was torn by the beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Jacob's really ticked off at this point. He's going back to the time when he worked for Uncle Laban. He said, Laban, I made sure that I bore the loss of every single one of the animals that I kept for you. It was customary if one of the lambs of a flock or the goats of a flock was torn by a wild beast. The shepherd who watched the flock would have to find the leftovers. If there is an ear or a head or a leg or part of the fur of that lamb that was torn by beast and bring it back to the owner to prove that that lamb was not stolen, but indeed wild beasts had taken it. But he said, I bore the loss of it. You required that. Man, you were a tough boss, and I did it. There I was. In the day, in the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Now, he's just, you know, pouring on the sob story. It's true, but he's, you know, holding it against him, obviously. Unresolved conflict. That was a part of his family. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now they're really having a war of words here. The tension is mounting. And Laban answered and said, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or their children whom you have born? Now therefore come. Let's make a covenant, you and I. Let's be a witness between you and I. So Jacob set a stone or took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his brethren, go pick up some stones here. They took stones and they made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. And Laban called it Yegar Sahadutha. That's an Aramaic term. It's the only Aramaic words found in the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Laban called it that term, which is an Aramaic term, which means a heap or a pile for the sake of a witness. But Jacob called it a Hebrew name, Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also, Mizpah. Mizpah means to watch or to witness. Because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is the pillar which I have placed between you and me. The heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you. And you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. In the past, this whole event has been misinterpreted by Christians. In a kind of a sentimental way. You know, we Christians like to sentimentalize the truth. We like to take the human element out of it and make it just, you know, it's more palatable if it's more spiritual. Put a halo on it. Put some stained glass around it. You know. And so often, verse 49 has been used as a benediction. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. As if that's a blessing. It's not a benediction. It's a malediction. It is meant to say, here's the line in the sand, Bubba. It's right here. Here's the stone. Now you cross over here. You come over on my turf, you will be harmed. I cross over that line and I'll be harmed. That's the witness. And God is the witness. Listen, I'm not after you to watch you anymore. And since I can't watch you, God's going to watch you. And if you mess up, you break this covenant, these stones, yea, God is a witness against you. That's what he meant by that. And because I can't watch you, I don't trust you. May God watch after you. In other words, watch if you do something wrong. It's not a benediction. So next time somebody says to you, Mizpah, referring to this verse, don't be too quick to smile at them. 
It's not the original interpretation. It was not meant as a blessing. And Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. They ate bread, stayed all night on the mountain. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. I can just picture the scene. Went through all of them, you know, little um, Rachel and her and Joseph. Oh, Joseph, you're so cute, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, Reuben and, uh, and all the rest of them. And probably just walked up to Jacob and nodded. Maybe extended a uh, legalistic kind of a handshake. You know, the Lord be a witness. I'm out of here. And Laban departed and returned to his place. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. Chapter 32 is a great turning point in the life of a con artist. I love it. I love God. Listen, you might con other people. You might fool other people, but you'll never fool God. You know, oftentimes, we do place a high priority on human accountability. There ought to be accountability. We need one another. We need to be accountable to watch, to be accountable to one another. But let me tell you something. There's even a greater accountability. And a Christian, especially a servant of the Lord, knows that he's under the eye of God And a true servant of the Lord will live under the fear of God. I personally believe that when a man or a woman of God who is used by God begins to live outside the fear of God, that God will pop his or her bubble quick. I've seen it happen. And it's not beyond God to put that person on the shelf for a while or permanently until that person realizes, hey, listen, I'm not indispensable. There's lots of people that God can use. But the great thing about God is that He will break us. He will chase us. You might think you're getting by with it. You will for a while. You may decide, I'm not going to follow God. I'm mad at God. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to keep my priorities. I'm not going to fellowship. I'm just going to kind of barely get by or I'm going to run from God. God will let you. But if, like the prodigal son, You don't, in the distant country, come to your senses after eating pig slop and say, I will return to my father. Don't be surprised if your father starts chasing after you. Like the man we read about, the prophet from Gath Heifer in the Old Testament, named Jonah. God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and cry out against it. Nineveh? Oh, that's that way? I'll go that way. Nineveh was 500 miles to the east. He went 2,000 miles to the west. Flatly disobeying God. He went down to Joppa. He bought a ticket. God didn't stop him from going down to Joppa. He knew it was in his mind, knew it was in his heart. He didn't put stones in the way to trip him up or people to ambush him. He made it to Joppa. God let him. God let him buy the ticket. God let him get into the boat. Then the fun begins. Since God is the God of the seas, he decided to let a tempestuous storm shake that boat. In the midst of the storm, Jonah's sawing logs down in the bottom of the boat. Disobeying God is very fatiguing. Fighting the Spirit of God really wipes you out. He was wiped out. The pagans were praying. They're crying, each one to his own God, you know, and nothing works. So they start throwing cargo over the side of the boat. Finally, they find Jonah. Captain, Jonah's sleeping. They get Jonah out of the ship. Say, hey, who are you, man? What's your address? Where are you from? What do you do? And he said, I'm a prophet of God, the Most High God, the only true God. And I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, they had heard about the God of Israel. He was famous. All of the Phoenicians. All of... No. Test one, two, three. Is it working now? Test. 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 This one works? Great. This one will dump. 
was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> this one we'll use. When the men aboard the ship found out that Jonah was a prophet running from God, they, they got so angry, they said, What have you done? And Jonah said, Look, throw me overboard. What? Like, you don't want to repent or anything? You know, I mean, that would probably be best. Why don't you just do it? No, just, just throw me in the sea. I know that it's because of me that the storm has happened, so just dump me. Now, you'd think that even a hard-hearted follower of God would wake up in the midst of a storm and say, Okay, uncle, I give up, quit. Wouldn't do it. Throw me overboard. I'd rather die than obey. That was his message. I would rather die than obey. They throw him overboard. And it instantly became calm on the sea because God wasn't after those mariners. He was after Jonah. And Jonah's floating in the sea thinking, that was close, man. But he still didn't turn. Finally, God prepared a huge fish to come and swallow Jonah. He sat in there for an entire day and did not turn to God. A day and night passed, 24-hour period. Sat there. Now, lest some of you are on the unbelieving binge who think it is not possible for a fish to swallow a person, I refer you to the reports from Encyclopedia Britannica that document two cases of men being swallowed by whales and surviving it after a few days. Another 24-hour period elapsed. Didn't turn. After three days, he broke and he gives this beautiful psalm of praise. Oh, blessed be the name of God. And he, in poetic Hebrew language, says, I give up, uncle. Please, let me out of here. I'll do anything. And so the whale graciously vomited Jonah up onto dry land. And he went to Nineveh. But what God had to go through to get his attention, he had to break him. Now, if you decide that you're going to walk away from God, his call upon your life, an obedient walk, He'll let you go to Joppa. He'll let you buy the ticket. He'll let you go down to the boat. But you've got some stormy weather ahead of you. You've got a life, perhaps, of anguish and anxiety because, listen, God can wrestle with you. God's done it a lot longer than you have. And God can get you in a headlock till you're pinned up against the wall like He does with Jacob here until you finally call, Uncle! He's not going to hang speakers from the moon that say, read your Bible. <laughs> Obey my voice. They'll let you go through with it. But if you persist, God will hunt you. The Holy Spirit has been called by some expositors the hound of heaven. How I thank God for his spirit who pursues me. Because I do lots of dumb things. And I'm so thankful for God who pursues me. And if need be, wrestles me and gets me into that place where he can use me. Jacob was hard-headed. He'd already had a turning point in his life. He'd already had a, a blessed time when he left Beersheba. The first day, he went 40 miles by foot. He was so filled with anxiety that his brother Laban would catch him and kill him. And he made it to the mountains of Jerusalem, 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem in a barren, rocky place. And that night, with a guilty conscience, he lay down to sleep. And as he lay down to sleep, he looked and he saw in a dream a stairway that led from earth to heaven, angels of God going up and down. God was on the top and said, Hey, Jacob, I'm the God of your grandpa, Abraham. I'm the God of your dad, Isaac. And the land that you are on now, even though you're leaving, I'll bring you back. I will bless you, I will be with you, and I will make your descendants cover this land. He woke up the next day and went, Wow! God is in this place! I didn't even know it. And in true California demeanor, he said, This is an awesome place. And he called it Bethel, the house of God. 
It was a turning point in his life. But then for 20 years, he spent with Uncle Laban, who helped him refine the fine art of manipulation. And he hadn't given up on that. He was really a sorry witness for the Lord during those 20 years. He wasn't the best witness. God's hand was upon him because of a covenant he made. But he lacked and lapsed in his witness and his faith before the Lord. Now, God's going to get a hold of him once again, wrestle him down and break his will. He's going to have to cripple him to do it. Has God ever done that to you? I'm not saying crippled you to do it. But has God ever gotten your attention with perhaps an affliction? See, God wouldn't do that. The Bible tells us plainly, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him for whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges, or He whips, every son that He receives. In other words, He knows how to give His kids a spanking. There are times when we need to be taken to the woodshed. And every time we're taken to the woodshed, it's a proof that we belong to the Father. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He says, if you endure chastening, you are a son. For what son is there whom His Father chasteneth not? But if you do not endure chastening, or if you don't experience chastening, he says, it shows that you are not a son, but you're an illegitimate child. If God has not spanked you, I would worry. If God has not chastened you, I would have, I'd be a little bit filled with anxiety. But if, on the other hand, God has pressed you, chastened you, even scourged you, it proves that you're his child. I'm the only one in my neighborhood that is allowed to spank my son. My wife as well. We do it because we're his parents. I don't like to do it. I like to do it as seldom as I can. Only when there is overt, hard-hearted rebellion. But in a crowd, you could pick out Nathan's dad if he was acting up because I would be the one who would be able to take him and discipline that discipline proves that there's a relationship there. God spanks His kids. Don't be discouraged if God does it to you. God loves you. God wants to correct you, get you back on the right path. And it's a proof that you... So next time you're chastened, rejoice. Not that the spanking feels good. When I was a kid and my dad took out his belt, I didn't go, oh, rejoice. I hated it. I hated the words that my mom used to say. Wait till your father gets home. No, not that. But you know what? Now that I'm grown, I thank him. I thank him that he had the, he had the guts to love me enough to correct those areas of my life that needed correction. I, I thank him for it. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the book of Hebrews tells us, when God chastens us. God's going to do that to Jacob as he gets a hold of him. Now it says Jacob went on his way. He's just going his way, you know. But the angels of God met him. The Bible says that the angel of the Lord encamps about the righteous. He's there to deliver him. Do you know that angels follow you? I believe wholeheartedly in a guardian angel. Not just in a guardian angel, but pr probably several of them. And depending on how some of you live, drive, or whatever... You may have a few more than others. Some of you live, you know, right on the edge. There have been many times where I have known, hey, God's been here. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that angels are ministering spirits that are dispatched to minister to those who are heirs of salvation, you and I. The Bible also tells us that we ought to be careful to entertain strangers. And how we treat strangers, people you see for the first time. Because many have entertained angels unaware. You say, well, I've never seen an angel. You probably wouldn't know it if you did. You'd entertain them unaware. So be careful of meeting strangers. But the angels of God met him there. And it seems that he was able to distinguish that these were angels from his past experience. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. In other words, you know, here I am in my tent, I'm camping out, but no, this is God's camp. He called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps or two hosts. What he meant by that 
is he had just left Laban's host. All the people that were with him, they went back. Now he encounters God's host, the angels who were there. So he called it two hosts or two encampments. And Jacob, he's about to meet the third encampment too, his brother. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them saying, speak thus, now listen to his language, to my Lord Esau. Oh, he's using the buttery language now. Remember, God said that Esau would serve Jacob and that Jacob would be Esau's Lord or master. But he's scared. He's afraid. And so he says, go talk to my Lord Esau. Thus, your servant Jacob says, notice, your servant. It's not what God promised would happen. He's not living by the promises of God at this point. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. <laughs> now he's going to change pretty quickly. He's already a little bit scared. He anticipated this. He's coming into the land. He knows that he has to inform his brother. Now, he comes into the land toward the mountains of Gilead. You can see on the map uh, that purple spot uh, sort of in the middle to the left. And his brother is down in the area uh, quite a bit further down in present day Jordan. So he has to send messengers all the way down to Edom, southeast of the Dead Sea, a long distance, just to let him know, hey, your brother's back into the land, though he's hundreds of miles away from you, or about 150 miles, he's back. Messengers come back and say, well, we came there to give him the message, but he'd already found out he's on his way to meet you. There's 400 of his men that are with him. At that point, he swallowed his heart. He probably was asking questions like, well, how did he sound? Uh, was there tension in his voice? What exactly did he say? Uh, did he have a smile? Or did these men have a smile? Or were they angry? He remembered what his brother had said 20 years ago. He said, when the old man kicks the bucket, I'm after your hide. Now, that is paraphrased, by the way. He said, when my father dies and the days of mourning are past, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to kill you. He knew that his brother was hot-headed and impetuous and that he never forgot a thing. He's scared. So he's attempting to soften his brother with a bribe. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, saying, We came to your brother Esau. Oh, no, I already read that one. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, and I will deal kindly with you. Now he's going to appeal to God on the basis of a covenant. You're the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. You're the one who told me to come back. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant, for I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Can you detect a change in this man? Lord, I admit, I need your mercy. He's admitting his sin now. He, there's a breaking. He just met Laban. The angels met him. His brother's after him. He's really in a desperate situation. Why is he so afraid? It's not just for his life. He's got wives and his own children. The ones that he loves. He wants to, it's the fatherly instinct to protect. And so in great desperation, he cries out to God, Oh God, you promised, you told me, you gave me your word to come back. That you bless me. That I am not worthy of the least of your mercies. If you sin, admit it. The quickest way to forgiveness and restoration is to say, I sin. I made a mistake. I blew it. He who seeks to cover his sin will not prosper. He who forsakes, confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. You know, there are some people who in their pride just won't admit that they were wrong. 
And they never find the reconciliation and the restoration of their own spirits. They live in that anxiety continually. You know, the, the two hardest words probably ever spoken are, I'm sorry. So hard for us to do it. Basically, that's what he's saying. I'm sorry I sinned. Should people of God repent? Yes. Jesus told the church of Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. Jacob is coming to that place of being broken in repentance. Now, verse 11 is really the heart of the prayer. Deliver me, <laughs> I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that same night and he took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. I like his prayer, man. I really like it. He prayed from the heart. Deliver me. He meant it. When you're desperate, you mean it. I'm convinced that's why sometimes God will allow us to go through desperate circumstances because that's then that we admit our need. Oh God, I can't make it alone. Help God. You're in a good place when you're in that place. There were three pastors that were talking about the best position for prayer. And of course, one said the best way to pray is your thumbs upward. Shows that you're reverent. You respect the God who's above you. The other guy said, no, you should kneel down. That's a sign of respect. The other pastor said, oh, you're both wrong. You need to be prostrate on your ground before the Lord. That's the most humble position. Telephone repairman was in the back overhearing. And he said, you know what? I have found that the most conducive position for prayer, the best prayer that I ever prayed, when I was dangling in midair by my heels 40 feet from the ground on a telephone pole. To me, that was the best position. Because he really meant it. Jacob really meant it. God deliver me. Then he gives a negative confession. Mark that. You who believe it's wrong to give a negative confession. He said, I'm afraid. God, I like that kind of honesty. Some people say, oh, you shouldn't say that. Shouldn't admit that you're afraid. You should speak a positive confession. It's better to speak a negative confession in honesty than to speak a positive confession in dishonesty. Better to be honest before God. You're not fooling God. Oh God, I really trust you. I'm not afraid. God can see right through that. If you are afraid, just say, I'm cooked. Help. That's honest. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. He was honest. It was negative. But God can handle it. God knows your frame that you're but dust. So he lodged there that same night, took what came to his hand as a present for Esau's brother. Here's the present. Here's the bribe. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 fowls. He delivered them to the hands of his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass before me, put some distance between the successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and ask you saying, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? You shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. And he commanded the second and the third and all who followed the drove saying, in this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you shall find him. You see what he's doing here? He's softening him up. By the third drove and by the time he gets to Jacob, he's going to go, I can't kill the guy. He's given me three huge flocks. And each time he was to be surprised and to break down the hardness of heart as he came to him. And also say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. But he himself lodged that night in the camp. Now remember, he prayed to God. He said, God, I'm afraid. Help. But look at verse 12. You said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Lord, I'm going to go on ahead. I'm afraid, but you made a promise in your word. 
that my descendants will occupy this land, which means they can't be killed. If they're killed, your promise is invalid. So I'm standing on your word. At the same time, he goes through this bribing process. Now, was this a prayer really of faith? No, it wasn't. It's the kind of prayer that you and I pray many times, right? God, I trust you and I lay my burden down. I cast all my care right now upon you because you care for me. Oh, you're so good. And then when we're done with that episode of prayer, we take the burdens that we just placed before the Lord, put them safely on our back and walk out of his presence and start worrying about them all over again. What if God's not going to do it? What if I'm dead? What if my rent doesn't come through? What if this doesn't work? We give them to him, then we take them back. We cast all our care upon him. Then we go, uh, listen, God, are you done with that care? Can I worry about that a little while longer? We don't trust him. You know, trust is difficult. Admit it. Admit that you hate faith. I hate it. I would rather have it in the realm of reason, wouldn't you? You would. I know you would. As long as you can figure out how it's going to work. Oh, I see God. I see what you're doing. The plan it makes perfect sense. It's logical. That's going to happen. Then you'll bring this person. Great idea. And then God goes a different direction with it. And you go, God, uh, I think uh, you made a mistake. Um, You had your chance, you blew it. And when it's out of the realm of your reasoning, and you have to just trust the promise of God, you can't see any way for it to work. You don't like that. You'd rather be in the realm of the intellect, in the natural. You want to be able to figure it out and reason it out. And as long as it's not in the realm of reason, but in the realm of faith... (gasps) It's difficult. We hate faith, but the just shall live by faith. And that's why God successively takes you and I up the road of faith. What you are experiencing today is probably much more difficult than what you experienced when you were a baby Christian. God weaned you. The trials that I experienced today would have wiped me out in 1973 as a baby Christian. Couldn't have handled it. But God strengthened me. He knew that I could lift back then just a few pounds, so he didn't give me too many. And I you know, worked out with those and exercised the muscle of faith, and pretty soon the muscle got larger and larger until we learned more and more to trust him. But God is always full of surprises, isn't he? Just when we think, oh, I never thought that would happen, God's right around the corner. And he rose that night. This is the, this is the key of it. This is the heart of it. He rose that night, took his two wives, his two maidservants, his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford Jabbok. The Jabbok River is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It is about 21, 22 miles long. It goes through the mountains and empties into the Jordan River. It's a natural impasse. He's crossing over, coming closer and closer to the land that his brother Esau occupies. He sent them over the brook, and he sent over what he had. In other words, he was alone that night. Probably wanted to be alone. Perhaps he just wanted a good night's sleep. You know, when you travel with four wives, 11 kids, all at the age, probably in the tent, making lots of noise, having a lot of fun, and it's worry to travel. He just thought, you know, I haven't gotten many good nights sleep. Sleep. I I need a couple good nights, or at least one good night. You know, after all, I just got through with Laban. Then the angels appeared to me the next night. Then I hear that my brother is after me with 400 men. Man, I haven't had a good night. I need a good night's sleep. You go on ahead. I just need to be alone. And so, we come to the first wrestling match in the Bible. Jacob was left alone, but he didn't get a good night's sleep. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint and he wrestled with him. Wish that would have been on video. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, that is Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? He said, heel catcher, Jacob. Now, this scripture is often quoted as a basis 
for persistence in prayer. That there's Jacob, and he sees the angel of God, or the pre-incarnate Christ, and he grabs a hold of him, and he's wrestling him down like he's in this position of strength. Jacob didn't wrestle with him. The man, the angel of the Lord, wrestled with Jacob. Jacob, at first, he didn't try to, okay, here you are, I'm going to get you down and get a blessing from you. Jacob didn't want anything from him, at first. The angel of the Lord, God, wanted something from Jacob. He wrestled with Jacob. What did he want? Surrender. Surrender. So he got him down, and he wrestled him to the breaking of the day. He wants to show him his weakness. When he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. Listen, it wasn't like, oh, who's going to win? I don't know who's going to win here. Oh, the angels got it on Jacob. Oh, Jacob got him in a little, um, you know, death grip there. No, it wasn't that at all. There was always that one touch of God that completely debilitated Jacob. That's all it took was a touch. It wasn't that he lacked strength. He just touched his hip and he was out of joint. Couldn't walk. What was happening? He was showing Jacob just how weak he really was. Listen, Jacob wasn't there to fight. He didn't need any more conflict. Believe me. He just had conflict with Laban. His brother's out to, he thinks, kill him. He's, he's not looking for a fight. Hey, who are you, angel? Come on, let's fight. No, he wanted a good night's sleep. He was alone. He sent his wife and children ahead of him. He touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Every major Jewish commentary and Christian commentary rightly interprets this as God wrestling Jacob to break him of his strength, to break him of letting himself be mastered by himself, to come to a place where he was just relying upon God. Toward the end, after his hip was out of joint, he was crying out, I won't let you go, please bless me. He was asking God for the blessing that he stole 20 years prior. He knew now who he was dealing with, and he cries out, bless me. I won't let you go till you bless me. You know, we've said that there are people that are just hard nuts to crack. Jesus said, fall upon this rock and be broken, or this rock will fall on you and grind you to powder. Now, he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, saying, tell me your name, I pray, or I beg, I ask. He said, why is it that you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face and I'm still alive. My life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose up on him and he limped on his hip. Why did he touch his hip? So he couldn't run. You know, Jacob always manipulated and pushed and when things weren't going his way, he would always run. He ran from his dad, from his brother, from his mob. Stole away at night. When things didn't go get well with Laban, he ran away. Always ran away from trouble. So he's wrestling with him. He thought, well, I can always run. Boom. Bringing him to an end of himself, to the loss of his strength. The secret of your strength is the admission of your weakness. If you don't believe that, God can convince you of that. I got a letter today from a great, a beautiful brother in this fellowship who just said, Skip, for the last few months, the messages that you have spoken on Sunday morning have just hit right to my heart and God has used them to just convict me. God is changing me. But he says, I'm coming to a place where I see that I'm such a failure in my Christian walk. I'm so weak. I'm so unable to be the God, man that God wants me to be. And I read the letter. And if you're here tonight, know that you are in the best place and the place of strength. When you admit your weakness, when you come to a place where no longer your flesh is in control, you're not mastering your own destiny, you're not the captain of your own ship, but you're weak and depending upon God, you're in the place of greatest strength. The Apostle Paul said that. He said, I had a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent from God 
who afflicted me. I cried out three times. It didn't work. God said, my grace is sufficient. Therefore, I rejoice in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jeremiah says, Cursed is the man who trusts in flesh. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. You might, on your own sometime, want to read tenderly, slowly over Jeremiah chapter 17 and let those truths sink into your life and into your heart. Crippled him. Crippled him. His name was Jacob. What's your name? Heel catcher. Well, guess what? I'm not going to call you heel catcher, but Israel. Which means God strives or striving with God. That could be looked at a few different ways. It's been translated a number of different ways. It could mean God rules. The best translation is probably one who strives victoriously with God. He was striving so long against God, he was striving against man as a heel catcher. He was at everybody's heels manipulating them. I'm changing your name, Jacob, because I'm changing you. Not into Jacob anymore, but into into Israel. God rules. One who fights victoriously with God. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. I've seen God face to face. My life is preserved. Now, you think, wait a minute. What do you mean he saw God face to face? Moses said, God, I want to see your face. God said, Moses, you see my face, you'll melt. You you can't handle it. No man can see my face and live. Yet he says, here, I've seen the face of God. What he meant is that he was able to see the manifestation of God and the angel of God, whom he equates as the face of God, but he was not able to see God in all of his resplendent glory. No man can. In the book of John, the apostle says, For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, for no man has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared Him. The greatest day of your life is when you see His face. David said, When I awake in your likeness and I see you, and I'm in, I'll be satisfied. John, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world hates us, or does not receive us, because hated Him, did not receive Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's going to be a great day. Until that time, you don't see God face to face, but He saw the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. The rest of his life, he'd limp. He'd limp in weakness as a testimony of the night that God wrestled with him and got his surrender. He said, please, I want you to bless me. That which he stole 20 years before, he's begging now from God. You'll see a change in his life from this time forward. He'll be a different man. Relationships will be reconciled. God will begin to work powerfully, even more powerfully in his life, in the area of relationships now. Because God finally broke him. By the way, the Jewish writing, the Halakha, says that an Orthodox Jew must remove the sciatic nerve and the tendon in that place before he prepares an animal to eat it. Because of what happened on that night. Because the Jewish people look back to the night that he was changed from Jacob, a man of the flesh, to Israel, a man of the spirit. Leighton Ford, one time an associate evangelist with Billy Graham, said, God loves you the way you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. Have you found that to be true? He saves you, but that's just the beginning. Then He works on changing you. And all of your old characteristics, the old man that you've been mastered by, He wants to break you down until you come to a place where you go, I give up! I give up! I'm totally yours! I absolutely, totally surrender my life to you. As long as you're holding on to some little area, some arena of practicing the flesh and being governed by the flesh... 
God will work on you. If you are not cooperative, God will let you sometimes follow your own path and encounter your own circumstances. But there comes a time when God loves you enough to pursue you, and He can wrestle you. David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. The Bible teaches us that God will use even affliction to get our attention. The best way to live is underneath the fear of the God. God loves me. But I have to live under that accountability that I'm here to live, and to serve, and to please my Lord. Do not harden your hearts, the writer of Hebrews says, as those who harden their hearts in the Old Testament. And God had to deal with them. Let your heart be soft before the Lord. You, some of you have recently come to know the Lord in the last few months. It's been a great time. But I've got to warn you. There is often a honeymoon stage that many Christians encounter. The first few weeks are just filled. It's like a bubble. This protective casement. You're under the spout where the glory comes out. And you're experiencing just joy and it's awesome and peace and nothing can go wrong. And then all of a sudden, something, you know, just out of the blue, it seems like the bubble is burst and you wake up and you're in real life. Some people call it a wilderness, a desert. You experience hard trials. And you wonder, where's God? Where are His promises? But God wants you to be able to say like Jacob, who at Bethel thought God wasn't around, God is in this place. I just didn't know it. And God will use those circumstances to grow you up so that you become more and more into His image. Don't worry. You won't always be in that place of wilderness. There'll be springs of refreshment. God knows what you can take. When you've learned your lesson, God will take you to that place once again of refreshment. It ebbs and flows. But be careful that you learn the lessons or you'll always be having to go back to Peniel. You know, you wrestle. You just kind of make it. I don't give up though, God. Don't worry. Round two is coming up. God will keep taking you back till you learn the lesson. Learn it. Move on to the next stage. Learn those lessons. Don't strive against God. Fight victoriously with Him. Some of you have been fighting God. I know that because it's human nature to do it. Some of you, God has been trying to wrestle just to get your attention so that He might have your life, so that He might save you from your sins. Some of you tonight aren't born-again Christians. You're here by invitation. You're here out of curiosity. Or you're just here, you don't even know why you're here. You just ended up here. You saw the lights on, you said, I'll pop in and see what that's about. But deep in your heart tonight, you know that you don't have the satisfaction of knowing the guilt is removed, the sins are gone. You don't have a relationship with the Savior, the lover of your soul. And after hearing this study tonight, you think, you know, I think God's been trying to get my attention. How, how far will you go? Will you be like Jonah? Throw me overboard! Or will you say, when it starts getting rough, God, whatever it is you're showing me, you've got my attention, here's my life. If you're in that place tonight, surrender to Him. If you're a Christian, surrender to Him. If you're not a Christian, surrender your heart to Him that you might be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, that our lives would be continually bearing the fingerprints of Yourself. That we would let You mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That we would not become hardened. That we would grow and change. Sometimes you use affliction to get our attention. Like David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But he blessed you for his affliction. Lord, I pray that you would use any desperate circumstance that has occurred in our lives to bring us to you. And as your head is bowed, as your eyes are closed, and you're kind of one-on-one -on -one with the Lord right now, you're meditating about your future, about your life. No one is there looking at you, really. It's just you and God right now. And you're thinking about eternal questions. I wonder if there's some of you tonight that haven't yet fully surrendered your life 
to Jesus Christ, who wants to be your Savior and your Lord. You sense the ache, the emptiness, the unanswered questions. You want to know the guilt is gone. I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life to Him. If in this moment of silence you know that that's you that I'm speaking about, if you want to surrender your life to Him, I'd like you to raise your hand up right now so that I can see your hand and pray for you and keep them up in the air as you raise them. God bless you too here. You, ma'am, right up front. Over here on the side, God bless you. Anyone else, raise up your hand. Over here on the side to my right. Anyone else? Is God speaking to you? God bless you. Raise up your hand. Saying, yes, Skip, pray for me. I want to know Jesus tonight. I want, my, I want a new start. I want a new slate. I'm not going to keep...